0: So, um, in our house, and I'm sure you have this too, regardless of where you live, and uh, there's always things that need to be fixed in a house, right? There's always something. There's always a to do list. There's always something that needs to get done. There's always something that needs attention. In our home, there's a long list of things that need to be fixed and we're working towards. But there's one list, one item on that list in particular that has been on our to do list for years. I mean years. It's not a major deal. It's not a, it's totally broken. It's not, we can't survive with, with, with this problem, but it has been a problem for years and just never got around to it at all. In fact, it's interesting, when that first became a problem, it was the biggest problem in our house probably. You know that, right? When it first shows up, it's, oh, I can't believe that. It's so annoying. It's such a problem. We need to fix it and we need to fix it now. So you probably put it on the to-do list and we need to fix it. We need to go to Home Depot. We need to get some stuff to make sure that this thing is no longer a problem. But then life gets in the way, doesn't it? Things get, you get busy, things come up. Other bigger problems maybe show up. And so what used to make the list at some point didn't even make the list anymore. It's still a problem. You're still aware of it. But you begin to get used to this problem. This problem for us in our house, again, we have many of them, but this one specifically, squeaky doors. You got squeaky doors in your house? They drive me crazy. Every single one of the, the doors in my house, the garage door, the back patio door, the screen door, the pantry door, the bathroom door, every single bedroom door squeaks in our house, every single one of them. And like I said, when it first became noticeable years ago, It was like the biggest problem in the world for us. Every time I'd open a door, oh, I hate that it's so squeaky. I'm willing to fix that one of these days. I'm going to add that to the list. This weekend, when I'm off work, I'm going to make sure that this problem gets fixed. Because I would know how to fix it. You go to Home Depot, you get some WD-40, and it's no longer a problem. It's an easy fix. But somehow that simple problem has still been a problem years and years later even to the point where you don't notice it as much anymore. That first few weeks of squeaky doors, oh, it just drive you crazy. A couple years later, you open the door, it's just part of life. Well, yeah, it's just my house. It has character. We say that, right? When there's a problem, oh, it just adds character. It's just part of my house. Find it interesting how quickly we learn, maybe even we grow, to deal with problems like that. Now, it's no big deal to have squeaky doors in your house, but if we think of our own personal lives, how easily we grow to be okay with certain things. The dysfunctions of our lives, the problems and issues, the sins in our lives. At one point, we're a really big deal. And we are like, I've got to fix it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to make sure that this is no longer a problem because I know what I need to do and I know what I'm going to do and I'm going to make sure that it gets on that list and we're going to fix it. But then life happens and we get busy and, and bigger things start to get in the way. And all of a sudden, it doesn't seem as big of a deal as it once was, even to the point of, well, you know, it's just kind of who I am. It's just, you know, we've learned to deal with it. It's, you know, it's just some things you can't really change. We're, we're all sinners. And we begin to just grow used, grow used to certain things in our lives. Now, the good news is, This last week, I fixed all of our squeaky doors. Like two or three years later, I finally fixed it. You know the sad part? The can of WD-40 has been in my garage the entire time. When I went out there, I was actually cleaning the garage. I was like, a can of WD-40? I was like, I know what I'm going to do. The kids were already in bed and asleep this last week. And I went through and I sprayed every single door in our entire house. (laughs) Every hinge of our house. It was an easy fix. Oh, but you just get used to it. Can I just say, like, for me, and I hope this would be true for you as well, like, I don't want to get used to certain things. There's certain things that, yeah, you learn to live with and you learn to roll with, I get that, but there are some parts of our lives that we should not be used to, that it shouldn't just be a, well, it is what it is. No, there's parts of our lives that we need to not be okay with. Now, where we're going this morning, what we're going to look at, there's there's a parable I'm going to show you here in just a second. It's not so much about fixing the problems, though. It's allowing Jesus to do that. Because, yeah, I can get some WD-40 and go and spray the hinges on my doors and problem solved. Oh, but the sins of our lives, the, the problems of our lives are not that simple for us. But they are for Jesus. This whole series is based around Jesus knowing us and us knowing Jesus. Please hear, you are fully known, fully loved. Don't miss this last one and fully forgiven by Jesus. We've talked about those first two the last several weeks, that we are fully known, that everything you have ever done, everything you ever will do, Jesus knows. Just read through Psalm 139. He knows everything. We've even looked at John chapter 10, where he says, I'm the shepherd, and my sheep know me, and I know them. He says he knows everything about us, and he still loves us. He knows everything about you, and he still loves you. And how does Jesus, how did Jesus show his great love for us? He died for our sins. He died for our sins. There's a parable, as I mentioned, in Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, that's where we're going to be the rest of today. Luke chapter 7, here's the parable that Jesus gives. He says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Just so you know, some Bible speak here. One denarii is uh, equal to like one day's wage. So you could say one man owed a certain amount of money. One owed him 500 days worth of money, of working money. The other 50. That's a big difference. 500 versus 50. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. And listen to this question Jesus asks. Now, which of them will love him more? Both debts were forgiven. Both had debts. But which one would love him more? Let's just take a poll. Let's make sure we're on the same page before we go any further. Which would love him more, the 500 or the 50? The, the man that owed 500 denarii or the one that owed 50? Which would love him more for forgiving? Which one do you think? 500? The 50? The 500? Where are you at, kids? The 500? Which one's more? Yes, the 500, of course. Yes, he would have so much more gratitude. He would be so much more thankful. He would have so much more love and appreciation because his debt was great. But the forgiveness was also great. See, Jesus did a lot. When you read through his story in the gospel... In the Gospels, you see that he healed people, he helped people, he did miracles, he fed people, he taught people, he led people, he visited all these different places. Jesus did a lot, but don't miss the number one reason Jesus came for us. He came to die for our sins. Out of all the things that Jesus did, and maybe even all the things that we ask of Jesus, don't miss the number one thing, the mission critical part of Jesus coming for us was to die on the cross for our sins. That's why he came. He came to do exactly what he's explaining in this parable, to forgive the debts. So I want us to wrestle with that question that Jesus asks. Well, which would love him more? What's our response when we recognize what Jesus has done for us, what he has done in our lives? The things that we've probably gotten used to The things that we've learned to just deal with, the things that we've learned to just cope with, the things that we've just kind of said, well, it's just part of who I am. It's just part of my character flaws. It's just part of being human. What we've gotten used to, Jesus went to the cross for. So what does that change in our response to him? Who will love him more? Let's pray and we're gonna talk through that parable. Jesus, thank you so much for what you did on the cross for us. Thank you for not just learning to live with our sins like so many times that we do ourselves. I pray that we would wrestle with that question about what what changes in our lives, what changes in us when we recognize the greatness of what you've done for us, the greatness of your forgiveness, the greatness of your grace, because yes, our sin is also great, but your love is greater. So help us to wrestle this morning and let us have the the right response and the right posture as we grow in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So that parable is going to set up everything we're going to look at this morning. Also in Luke chapter 7, that parable is kind of smack dab in the middle of that chapter. So I want you to see the front side of that parable and the back side of that parable. I want you to see what led Jesus to saying the parable and then how he helped us understand, well, what do we do with that parable? Because all of that takes place in this scene at a man's house during dinner. So here's the story. We're going to read through it. It's a little bit of a longer story, but stay with me as we go through the story. I'll point out a few things, and then we're going to talk about the right posture to have, obviously all wrapped around that parable. Remember the parable. Two people had debts. One recognized he had more debt. They both were forgiven, and Jesus poses the question, how do you respond? Which one loves him more? Here's the story. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus Uh, to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So you have a Pharisee and Jesus so far. Then look at verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. So here, this man, this Pharisee said, Jesus, I want you to come over to my house. I want to hear from you. Maybe even have some conversations sometimes the Pharisees are out to trap Jesus. Doesn't seem like that's the case yet. It seems like here's a man that's truly interested in Jesus. I want to get to know you. I want to kind of understand a little bit more, but doesn't necessarily, and we're going to see this later, doesn't necessarily believe that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah and Savior. So he's having Jesus at his house. And then this woman hears about Jesus being at this man's house. She says, I've got to be there. Now, as we're gonna hear a little bit more about her, I want you to pay attention to what she does not say. As we go through this story, pay attention to what she does not say. We see the Pharisee gonna say some things. You're going see Jesus say quite a few things. Pay attention to what this woman does and doesn't say. So far, she just brings an alabaster jar with her, super expensive jar of perfume. Here's how the story unfolds. Verse 38, as she stood behind Jesus at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Notice her response right away. As she sees Jesus, she immediately goes into humility mode, doesn't she? She's weeping. She's broken. She's, she's literally crying at Jesus' feet. She's wiping her tears with her hair. I mean, this is quite a humbling, maybe even humiliating scene for this woman. If you were to think of words that would describe her posture in front of Jesus, I would use words like brokenness, humility, conviction, love. I mean, the way that she is approaching Jesus would be a posture of humility and brokenness. Now, let's see from the Pharisees' response, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, not out loud, he's thinking it in his mind, if this man, talking about Jesus, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner, So we see this woman's approach to Jesus, this woman's posture to Jesus as one of humility and brokenness and love and conviction and recognition of her lives, but also recognition of the greatness of Jesus that she is now standing, kneeling before. This Pharisee though, he looks at this situation and says, oh man, he must not be the son of God or he would have a clue on who's actually at his feet if he really knew. See, what this Pharisee is doing is he's drawing a line Between worthy and unworthy. He says, I've invited Jesus. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a teacher of the law. I know my stuff. We would say self-righteous. He says, I'm worthy of being in Jesus's presence. But he drew a line and said, that woman, the life that she lives, the sin that she has in her life, she is now deemed unworthy because if he really was the son of God, he wouldn't even let her be in his presence. Do you see how he drew that line of judgment? Of worthy and unworthy. Unworthy. Now, Jesus, of course, has something to say about that. That's where we get the parable. This is what sets up that parable. Jesus answered him, Simon, talking to the Pharisee, I have something to tell you. What a great approach. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, I know what you're thinking. He doesn't say, how dare you? He just says, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Now, teacher's important because if he knew he was the son of God, maybe he would have said, well, tell me, Savior. Tell me, Messiah, No, he just says, tell me, teacher. Here's the parable we just read. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. And he asked Simon, asked this Pharisee that has drawn that line in the sand of worthy and unworthy. He says, now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. That word suppose is a pretty important word. Sounds like you're talking with a toddler, doesn't it? Well, I suppose. I know the right answer. I know what you're going for here, Jesus. I see what you're doing here, but I don't want to agree with it quite yet. So yes, Jesus, I suppose the one that has the bigger debt. Oh, and look at Jesus's words, and I think they're super intentional. You have judged correctly. Ooh, watch out. (laughs) He knew he was judging in his mind, didn't he? And here Jesus says, oh, you judged wrongly before, but yes, Simon, the way you just answered, now you have judged correctly. It's interesting what Jesus is saying here, and we're going to talk a lot more about this. He's connecting the awareness of our sins, the recognition of the greatness of our sins to how much we love him. Do you see what he's doing here? Which of these two, the one that owed 500 or the one that owed 50, which one would love more? Simon the Pharisee. I suppose the one that had the greater debt. Oh, you've judged correctly. It's almost as if Jesus is saying our love can actually be capped by our awareness of our debt. Let me say that again. That our capacity for love can almost be capped by our awareness or lack of our debt. Jesus goes on just a little bit more and begins to unpack it and really digs in. After he said, you've judged correctly, verse 44, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, so he's looking at the woman, but talking to the Pharisee, he says, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You, Simon the Pharisee, did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. In other words, all the love that she has shown, you had shown me none of that. Look at what she's done for me. Has she spoken a word yet? I told you to pay attention to what she says and doesn't. Has she spoken a word yet? No. All through her actions. Worshiping without words. Verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. And if this part doesn't rock your world, I don't know what will. As her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. That hurts a little bit, doesn't it? No, the, her great debt had been forgiven. And, and Jesus' words were, and look at how her great love has been shown. Simon, do you see what she's done from the moment I walked in the door? The way she humbled herself at my feet, the way she poured oil all over my feet, the way that she wept at my feet, the way that she showed love and adoration and brokenness. Simon, do you see her love? Simon, why don't I see that love from you? Jesus explains, well... Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. The opposite would also be true. Whoever has been forgiven greatly loves greatly. That awareness, that recognition of our debt in some ways are tied to our capacities to love Jesus more and more and more. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, said to the woman, your sins are forgiven The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? That's a common phrase we see throughout the Gospels of people not totally knowing. We saw it last week as well. Who is this man? Who is this guy? Who is this fellow that claims to forgive sins? That's great that he can do miracles. That's great that he's teaching. That's great that he's wise. That's great that he's leading. It's great that he's doing all these things, but wait a second, he begins to forgive sins. Who is this guy? Who is this man that forgives sins? Verse 50, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you, and I want you to say these last three words with me. Go in peace. If you're taking notes, circle and highlight that word peace. We're gonna come back to it at the very end. It's a real important word in this context here. Fascinating story, isn't it? And that parable's right smack in the middle of it. And it all revolves around our response to Jesus when we recognize the greatness of our debt and the greatness of our sin. So here's what I wanna do, and here's my hope and prayer we've been getting ready for it today. My hope and friend, this is going to maybe sound a little bit strange. I hope you recognize the greatness of your sins. (laughs) Not to be guilt, right? We don't see anywhere in here for this woman to feel guilty. That's key. Because so often we tie, well, the more I'm aware of my sins, the more guilty I feel. The more I recognize of everything I've done wrong and am doing wrong, the worse I feel. The more that I recognize how far away from God I am, the more that he will keep pushing me far away. And none of those are true the greatness of our debt, just like in the parable, when we recognize the magnitude of our sins, then we also have more capacity to love Jesus. I can't tell you how many times, as a pastor and in my role, I get people that ask a pretty basic question, a kind of a generic question, but it's a heartfelt question. How do I grow in my relationship with Jesus? How do I learn to love him more? Like there's all those things, right? If you grew up in church, you know kind of the Sunday school answers, read your Bible, pray more, all those things. What about recognizing your sin more? I mean, sure, you can read your Bible more. I'm, all, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. You should pray more. I'm a huge fan of that. There's all the things, volunteering and giving and serving. I mean, you go through the list. But you know what usually doesn't make our list? Recognizing all the terrible things I've done. <laughs> oh, we like to, well, look at what I'm doing. These are the good things. Oh, but when we recognize all the terrible things, that's when we start to love our Savior even more and more and more. So I want to help you with that, right? This might not be the most uplifting sermon you've ever heard in your entire life, but I think it'll move you closer to Jesus, and that's my goal here. (laughs) Not to make you happy, get you closer to Jesus. So bear with me. Here's the first thing I would tell you, so that we can have a posture like this woman, that we can have a heart like this woman, who never said a thing to Jesus, she just came before Him. The first thing I would tell you is open your eyes to the realities of your sin. Kind of like my squeaky doors, it's easy to just learn to live with them. It's easy to just say, ah, it's just part of life and we're not perfect, and I agree with that. Perfection is not the goal. Jesus is the only one that that has been perfect and your perfection comes through Jesus. But open your eyes to the realities of your sin. Let me say this, and I'm gonna include myself in this. Our sin is probably more than we recognize it, and it is most definitely worse than we recognize. Finish it with me, the wages of sin is death. So the wrongs that we do, the consequence that it is deserving is death. It must be pretty bad. Oh, but we just learned to live with it. It's no big deal. I'm I'm a work in progress. I get that. Do we recognize the greatness of our debt? And here's why that's important. And follow me here. If you do not recognize your need for a savior because you don't have all that sin, it's not that bad. I can handle it on my own. Well, then why did Jesus come? When we recognize the greatness of our debt, the hole that we have dug ourselves in that we cannot get out of, then and only then do we recognize our need to be rescued. Only do we recognize, only when we recognize that I'm drowning and I'm about to die, do we recognize our need for someone to throw us the life raft and to save us and to rescue us, to swim out and get us. Only when you recognize the greatness of your sin do you recognize your desperate need for a Savior. If your sins aren't all that bad, well, then you don't really need a Savior. If they are really bad, oh, you and I both need a Savior. Psalm 139, I mentioned it earlier. encourage you to read through Psalm 139. The whole chapter is nothing but here's how much my God knows me. At the very end, it turns a little bit to application. Here's what we do with that. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Listen to this prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. That's dangerous. Be careful if you pray that. You're opening yourselves up. I want you to know everything about me, all the bad stuff too. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. In other words, put me in situations and let's see how I do. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. And here's the last part. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. What we're saying is, God, there's probably some stuff in my life that I've learned to live with, I've learned to deal with, and I want you to show me all that. I want you to begin to change me and lead me in a different direction. Make me aware of it so I recognize my desperate need for you. Show me my great sin so I recognize my desperate need for a savior. Open your eyes to the realities of your sin. Second thing I would tell you is come to Jesus with humility and brokenness. That's what this woman did. She modeled it so well. She came before him and knelt at his feet. She brought with her an expensive, a very expensive jar of perfume that she just dumped all over his feet. It's that brokenness. It's that humility. Unlike the Pharisee, who was very self-righteous and deserving... I invited Jesus to my house. He most certainly, he would, it would be a privilege for Jesus to come to my house. Now this woman showed up and was weeping and she was full of not guilt, not guilt, but gratitude for a savior. And again, there's the big difference. When you recognize, like we said in the first part, opening the reality, open your eyes to the realities of your sin, you get to see the greatness of your debt and the greatness of our mistakes. Oh, but then we see the greatness of our Savior. And when you bring your great sin to Jesus, you will not find guilt and you will not find condemnation. What you will find is gratitude. We have a posture of gratitude because I can't believe my Savior would save me from all of this. And we find freedom because he doesn't hold it against us. He forgives our sins. It's why he came. In Psalm chapter 51, David, in a moment of what we might call guilt, but it was actually gratitude, when he was caught in the middle of his big sins, he looked to God and he said, man, I have a broken and contrite heart, meaning remorseful, not guilt-ridden. He was full of gratitude, but also awareness of his desperate need for a savior. In Second Corinthians, I want you to see this. This is a great, this is great language to use and how to be broken before God. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10. Listen, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. I love that progression. When we are sorrowful, sorrowful for what we have done, it doesn't lead to guilt. No, it leads to repentance. It leads to a desire to change. And Jesus, I can't change on my own. I need you to do that only through your grace. And that leads to no regret. So it's okay to be broken before God. It's okay to show up in pieces. It's okay to show up and recognize your great need for a great savior. That godly sorrow moves us closer to him and it does not result in guilt. It results in freedom and also a posture of gratitude. Last thing I would want you to know, Jesus fully forgives you and makes you whole. Sometimes we get stuck in that brokenness. The, all everything that I've done, right? And if you don't miss, if you don't catch this last part, that's a hard season to stay stuck in. Can't tell you how many people that I meet with and they're stuck in that season of brokenness. Everything that I've done and all that. And I'm like, that's great that you're aware of all the bad stuff. It's great that you're recognizing the realities of your sin. But don't miss that he forgave you from those if you just feel the weight of all that you've done wrong and the weight of your sin and you never experience the freedom, you're missing out on the life Jesus planned, desired to give you. That's the life a fool in this life and in the next. So he has fully forgiven you, but he's also made you whole. Do you remember the word that I told you to remember at the very end, verse 50? He says, your sins are forgiven, now go in peace. That's right, good memories. Good job, everybody. Go in peace. That word peace, the original word there is irene. Irene is the original word there, and Irene does not speak to peace as in an absence of conflict. The word irony, peace as we're translating it, refers to wholeness, specifically made whole again. So peace, meaning what was once broken, is now made whole again. So he looked at this woman and he said, your sins are forgiven, now go, you've been made whole. That's true for us. we recognize the greatness of our sin. We come before Jesus with humility and brokenness, recognizing our desperate need for a Savior, which causes us to be full of gratitude and love. Not finding guilt and not finding condemnation, but finding freedom. We recognize that we walk away whole. That means you get to hold your head up high. When this woman walked away in peace, I would imagine when she walked into this home of the Pharisee, tears and broken, maybe even crawling on the ground to Jesus' feet. I feel like, and I don't know this, but I feel like when Jesus said, go in peace, go, you're now made whole, I feel like she stood up with a head held high, but eyes red from tears. And so many, so many nights of being full of guilt and Jesus took that guilt away. I feel like she might have even strutted past the Pharisee just a little bit. Who's worthy now? Because I'm made whole. I'm no longer just broken. Yeah, I started broken, but my Savior made me whole again. Don't miss that. You wanna love Jesus more? Recognize the realities of your sin. You wanna stay capped at where you're at in loving Jesus? Those that are forgiven little, love little. Those that are forgiven much, love much. Don't miss it. Jesus came to save us from our sins. A lot of our prayers revolve around, Jesus, I need this, and Jesus, I want this, and Jesus, help me with this. And I hope, the original question, how does this change our lives? How does the fact that Jesus saved us and forgiven us of all of our sins, how does it change our lives? I hope we pray different. I hope we walk different. I hope we interact with people differently everything in our lives begin to change because of what he did on the cross. I told you we're gonna take communion as a family. So if you're at home, if you wanna get ready for communion, if you're here, if you wanna grab your, your communion elements, let me read out of Ephesians chapter two and then we'll take communion together. Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse one. As for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins. By the way, the word dead that we translate there is a really nice churchy word. It would be better to say you were a corpse. That gives a great image, doesn't it? You were decomposing, you were rotting because of your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us, that's every single one of us, also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, we did whatever we wanted to. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The wages of sin one more time is death. But, verse four, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Heard it said before, I want to say it to you. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, He came to make dead people alive. That's why He came that's why we sing that's why we praise that's why we serve that's why we give that's why we tell everybody else that's why we show up to church it's why we love the way we love it's why we forgive the way that we forgive because we recognize the greatness of our sin and our desperate need for a great savior before we take communion if you would get your heart and mind right we're told to prepare ourselves before we take communion so if you'd close your eyes with me and I wanna give you a moment between you and the Lord. Do you recognize the greatness of your sins? Not to make you feel guilty, but to recognize your need for him. And it causes gratitude and freedom is what we find. Some of you have said something along these lines before. Some of you might not have, but in your heart, would you say something like this? Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I know that you came for me. I know that you died on the cross to take my sins away. I know that you are not dead. I know that you are alive. And I know that you have made me alive as well. I know that you have given me the gift of eternal life. I know that you have given me grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. I am yours. You are my king, you are my Lord, you are my savior. In just a moment, I wanna give you a moment between you and your savior. you take off the top wrapper for us here in the room? That wafer represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. The juice represents his blood that was poured and shed for us on the cross. Jesus fully forgives you, he fully loves you, and yes, he fully knows you. Take a moment to take communion, and then we'll end together in a song.